since we've reopened, there is a lot more staycations. We've had a lot more Irish people who have actually come to the restaurant for the first time. I hope that with the pandemic, uh, or one of the, one of the positives is that people might re-experience their own place and uh, and actually enjoy the I suppose the the food offering from uh, from that place. Today on Dirty Linen, we are heading across the seas to Ireland to Galway, a place that I love a lot. My father-in-law is from Galway. We are talking to chef and restaurateur JP McMahon. He's the owner of the Michelin-starred Anya, Spanish Carva Bodega and wine bar Tartare. He's also the founder of the food symposium Food on the Edge, which is happening this October, both virtual and in person. You've been to Australia and I know that there are Australians um, taking part in Food on the Edge. I saw that you've just announced Mark Best, uh, JP. Um, But firstly, welcome to Dirty Linen. I'm really thrilled to be chatting to you. Thanks so much. It's uh, really great to have you on the show. You're such a huge figure in the food scene in the UK and I'm really keen to hear from you, first of all, just what's what's the situation like? You've, you've reopened. How are things? Um, yeah, they're kind of fair to middling, I suppose. Uh, we reopened um, just two and a half weeks ago and uh, an ear had been closed for 18 months Uh Cava had been closed pretty much the um, maybe half of that time, and Tartar we had kept open as a as a takeaway throughout. Um, it was up and down, uh, I'm sure, as 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 it was everywhere in the um, uh, in the world. I mean, some 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 good and some bad came of it. Like they, we we I suppose pivoted to doing all of our cooking classes online. And they were quite uh, successful, so at least they kept us uh, busy. We did some kids cooking classes uh, with about two hundred kids. So I mean, that was uh, that that was uh, that that was good. Um, I suppose the bad side is we still don't know what the what the effects are in the sense of. Even for example, with with the near, uh, it's 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 quite dependent on tourism. Uh, we at the moment we have like a, a lot of Irish people on a staycation, like so they're staying at home. Uh, but it'll be interesting to see how the dynamic changes after, say, say September when the schools start again. And so it, it's still we're kind of going through, uh, I suppose, unknown unknown territory. Mm. I mean, we watched from Australia with great interest when there was, you know, the much vaunted Freedom Day in the UK and very much dependent on the high rate of vaccination. I mean, there are thousands of cases a day in Ireland at the moment, but a reasonably high vaccination rate. I just checked before, it's something like 65% of the adult population is fully vaccinated. Uh, what's the feeling like? You know, are, are, are you still wearing masks? Are people feeling confident? You know, what's it like? Yeah, like it's again, it's it's somewhere in the middle. It's kind of like they say we're coming towards the end, but I suppose we we've been. I felt we've we've been at the end uh, a few times, um, and like in contrast to say Copenhagen, where I have friends wor- working and cooking, and there's like no masks anymore, and uh, they have a very large antigen. Uh, free antigen program with uh, as well as the vaccination and if for some reason that's that's uh, it's something that Ireland Ireland rejected so we we you have to be vaccinated to eat indoors like you can't get a negative PCR test or uh, have an antigen test now they say they're going to do away with that next month but the cases are 2000 
um, 2,000 uh, a day approximately and uh, some of the people are some of the people are getting reinfected and some of the people are are still not vaccinated and then there's a lot of people I know who, who don't want to get vaccinated so um, it's um, it's uh, it's it's a hard one to call. What's the mechanism by which you ensure that people are vaccinated if they want to dine inside? There is a like there is a certificate like and it's it's an EU wide cert so you get you get vaccinated and you get your uh, you get your certificate um, and uh, I have mine and you have to show it if you want to if you want to eat inside I think they're going to introduce it to in in both in France and New York now and uh, like I, I I don't know um, if it's uh, if it's working in the sense of like the cases are going up anyway, so it's very hard. We have the Delta variant over here, so which is is, is supposed to be more um, contagious. So yeah, it, it's it's a hard one to call. Is in like uh, we, we the the live entertainment and the and the theater and the arts industry is still closed, and they're asking to open. Uh, it was like sport is open, but ironically, the, the theaters and uh, the music festivals are all have all been cancelled. So they're they're still like there's still a lot closed. Oh, that's so interesting because yeah, I had this vision of Freedom Day that everything was just happening, but it's it's clearly not like that. No, as well, I suppose. I mean, the, the and even in the UK when they had Freedom Day, like. They, they pulled back on, on quite a bit of things now. And I suppose they're trying to veer towards personal responsibility as opposed to, um, as opposed to uh, uh, regulations. And, and possibly as, as we approach uh, in, in Ireland, I think, I think we have 80% of the population has had one dose. And I think as we approach the 80% with two doses, I think they're going to have to do something like I think in Greece now they have opened everything and just said, well, the vaccinated are vaccinated, the unvaccinated are not. And and they can't keep the economy closed any longer because I suppose at the end of the day, there's only so long you can keep the economy closed because we're borrowing money. Restaurants, we're still getting grants because we have maybe 30 percent of our seats not used because of social distancing. So there's only so long that we can, I suppose, do that before, I suppose, the society itself becomes under uh, severe pressure. Yeah. I mean, where in Australia, you know, Melbourne and Sydney, the two biggest cities are in lockdown now. Things in Sydney are particularly bad, but, you know, Melbourne's not feeling great either. And we have seen big protests against the lockdowns, especially in Melbourne today. It was, you know, the, the biggest one and, to, to my mind, the the most alarming one because you do just get a sense that if people aren't going to just, if people aren't going to stay locked down, if people aren't going to abide by the rules, then it's, um yeah, there's just really not going to be any getting on top of it. I mean, we're told we've got to live with the virus. We've got Delta here as well, but we've got a very low vaccination rate, which is around 25%. So it's uh, frankly pretty scary. Yeah, and, and and I suppose the scary thing is that you still have a lot of people that think um, that COVID is just a flu and it's not real. And uh, like I have friends and uh, that, that think that and they refuse to get vaccinated. And, and it, it does cause... It's almost like a like a I suppose a civil war through a, through a virus because like unfortunately you kind of uh, you I suppose you don't meet them as often you don't talk to them as often because all, all they ever want to talk about is 
like what what the vac what what the vaccine is and what COVID is. And I suppose for me, it's it's trying to move on from it. And at the same time, I I, I don't. I really don't think that Ireland could could do another lockdown. I, I don't think the will of the people is there, but I'm not sure. Like it's um, like even with the high vaccine rate, the cases are still rising. And uh, but I honestly don't know what the solution is because if they lock down hospitality again, um, yeah, there there there's already places have closed, so it, it will do severe damage to the to the to that sector in the economy. And there's also, I mean, the, the tragedy is that there are other sectors like the pharmaceutical sector, the tech sector, um, uh, that are actually like uh, making vast quantities of money during this. So not only do you have uh, like lockdown and I suppose the the ill effects that come of that, but you do have a, a, a division emerging in society where some sectors are absolutely like um, are, are, are just taking it, are just taking it away. I think even if you look at some of the, the takeaway companies like the large ones, Domino, or then you look at Amazon, I mean, their profits have increased exponentially. Um, and that, and that will, I suppose, that will continue. I suppose. Yeah, I guess there's these different fault lines where divisions can appear and 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 grow wider through this whole period. Yeah, both, I guess, philosophically, if that's what you want to call anti-vax, and also financially, it's really, yeah, it's it is really interesting. Um, just with the the vaccine passport or people having to show that certificate, I mean, what's that like, you know, at the door of the restaurant? Uh, is is that a sort of a fraught time for people? Is it sort of, you know, three people have got it, one, pe- one person doesn't and they're told to sit outside? I mean, is that a tricky thing for your staff to negotiate? No, I, I thought it would be. And before I came in, everyone was getting excited and we were getting loads of hate mail saying we were contributing towards this division in society and they were going to book the restaurant and not turn up. And there was different champions of saying that that people need to oppose it. But in fairness, when it came in, it, it has been very smooth. Um, I mean, you can you can present your 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 certificate or or you can you can scan it. Um, and uh, we found that it's it's it takes a little bit of time at the door, but most people, I suppose, just want to want to want to eat out and they want to go in, and it, it's actually it has actually worked quite well. I mean, in Denmark, they they started it in April along with antigen testing, and I really think that that is the way to go because. Um, it just seems to have worked quite well, but for some reason, the the Irish um, Nefis, the Irish uh, Health uh, Board, who are looking after this, distrust antigen tests, so we didn't. But like, I'm I'm really surprised. Like, it, it is, it has been actually quite smooth in spite of the the opposition. Now, I'm sure it's a different case in the pubs where it's a bit more casual, but in the restaurants, we just ask people to if they if they're booking in just to make sure that they're they're they have their vaccination passes and uh yeah 90% of the time they have them and uh it it's it, it runs quite smoothly and what about your staff jp they're they're nearly all vaccinated now i think there's there's one or two that are not and uh i think one is uh, hasn't got vaccinated because she's she's pregnant and the other i'm not too sure but uh like we're all we all have masks on and we i suppose we i suppose we i suppose we do what we can in terms of trying to limit the the spread of any virus we we were we've been lucky that uh 
we um, we had to close Tartar at Christmas because our manager got COVID. It was only a day or two before they actually shut down the whole country again. But like I suppose it is scary when one of your staff gets it and then you only have one team and it's a close contact. Everyone's a close contact and you just have to close immediately and tell all of everyone in the restaurant, I'm really sorry, we have to close. <laughs> and and uh, every, and everyone just leaves. And it's 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 a very it's a very surreal experience. And that was back in December. Um but like since then, yeah, we've been lucky and uh, any of the staff that I suppose even though they're vaccinated if they feel that they may have it, they, they can get a test and get a result in 24 hours and they just stay home and uh, touch wood. Uh, no one has, uh, has, I suppose, been reinfected. Yeah. Yeah. The the rapid antigen testing is a big conversation here as well, particularly in the event world where people are saying, you know, if it, to, to get sport back up and going, to get theatre back up and going and concerts as well. You know, why don't they just uh, require people to do a rapid test before they enter? Uh, it hasn't been taken up here. I think they're doing a trial in one of the in South Australia um, to some small degree, but yeah, it hasn't really been taken up here either I'm just same as same as in Ireland but I know from a friend in London she said that they can just go to any chemist get a test for free um one of those rapid tests and then you know head to the head to the pub or whatever it is yeah no it's quite it's quite amazing and I I had uh, friends go to a big 40,000 music festival uh in in England uh they had to do an antigen test you upload it to the NHS you get your results within 20 minutes and then you go in and I I for me, it's a no-brainer. I'm not a scientist, but like in in terms of what it can what it can achieve and allow, I suppose us to um, to open more things, particularly now. Like uh, like we have some weird division in Ireland between sport and uh, and theatre in the sense that the sport is, has had people back and you have stadiums full of 40,000 people, but you still can't have like a big rock concert. So it's, uh, that's, I suppose, the where, where we're at. But look, I, they're still talking about using antigen tests. I mean, people themselves are actually using them. You can buy them uh, and... And people actually, I know groups of people who are meeting up, say if 12 friends are meeting up, uh, they actually are doing it themselves. Like they're under no obligation to do it. But I just know that just they're saying, well, look, let's just be careful. If we're going to meet up in a group and they, you can just buy it. They're, they're, they're quite inexpensive. So um, I, I think it, hopefully uh, with this Delta and with the cases, it's something that... Um, uh, it's something that the government are, are finally do. I think the government in Ireland are for it. It's 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 the health uh, nephew and the chief medical officer are against it, and there's this kind of tug of war between between the government and uh, and the and the the health officials. So I, I don't know who's going to uh, prevail. Mm. Oh, it'll be interesting to see how that progresses. Uh, tell us about the restaurants and the style of food that you do, JP. Uh, so, like, uh, let me see. So, an era, I suppose, is uh, is um, is is a I suppose a fine dining Michelin star restaurant that does, I suppose, what you'd call contemporary uh, contemporary Irish uh, Irish um, Irish food. So, um, the I mean, it's very influenced by the Nordic food movement in, I suppose when we opened in 2000 and 2011, it's, we use a lot of different wild herbs and seaweeds and, uh, it's quite, uh, I suppose there's quite a lot of indigenous ingredients. Uh, tartare is, is, um, 
is is somewhere in between an ear and and cava. It's a cafe during the day and, and a wine bar at night, and does little small uh, small plates of uh, of Irish food like oysters and tartare and different uh, uh, different other different offerings. And then cava, which was which was our first restaurant and and it's still our, our busiest restaurant, is a is a tapas bar which which very much. Uh, Looks to Spain has an old Spanish wine list, uh, all Irish produce, but again the lens is 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 different, and um, I, I suppose they're they're three different, very different offerings at, at different levels. But I suppose it works for us because I suppose uh, you um, it, it's difficult to to operate um, a fine dining restaurant in, in and of itself. So yeah, we I suppose we felt it necessary uh, over the years to try and supplement that with uh, with. Different Different styles of, of eating, and also I, I really love uh, many different styles and uh, uh, and ways of, of, of doing food. So I, I'd never, I suppose, limit myself to to, to just one style. Mm. So at a year, and, and apologies for mispronouncing it at the start of the podcast. <laughs> what's a what's a sort of key dish like? Sort of what's what 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 speaks to modern Irish cuisine? I suppose some of the some of the dishes we've had on a long time are like a maybe a charred oyster with some oyster mayonnaise, some pickled seaweed, some kind of beach herbs that we'd forage, a little bit of milled seaweed, like very finely milled. I mean everything is 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 very delicate, but all of the produce is uh, is uh, is Irish. We have like a lamb a lamb dish, and we'd have a we might have a little pork belly dish, and like I suppose the seasoning is key, and like the, because we don't use say citrus fruits or, or spice or pepper. All of our seasoning comes from uh, from the wild. So whether that's through a flower, through a berry, uh, through something that we've preserved or for, or uh, or for, or uh, or, ferme- or or fermented. But like ironically, when I cooked in Australia um, in uh, in Adelaide and tasting Australia, like I actually requested. Uh, like uh, Australian indigenous ingredients, and they're not a million miles. I suppose when you when you look at wild ingredients, they're 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 similar the world over. Of course, there's different flavor profiles, but we ended up doing a very similar oyster dish to the one in an ear. And I, I remember taking a picture of it, going, "Well, this is this could be contemporary Australian cuisine," uh, but it's uh, because it had um, loads of so many different. Uh, uh, indigenous ingredients and so I think it's just for me it's fun because when you when you travel and look at what grows locally and what has been there I suppose thousands of years it, it, it creates um, interesting combinations that, that you possibly would not have to, uh, would not have done uh, if you if you were just I suppose following uh, um, a, 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 some some different tra- trajectory. Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, especially with the seasoning, I love the idea that you're not um, that you're keeping that very true to the region as well. And it sounds like seaweeds are quite a big focus as well. Yeah, absolutely. And as well, seaweeds have always been important because not only because we're by the coast and there there are. Um, there are so many of them in Ireland, but they've all they've also been overlooked for a long time in Ireland because of, I suppose, because of the 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 way that the the land there is security in the land and 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 pretty much from when the potato came into Ireland in like the late sixteen hundreds, early seventeen hundreds. I mean, there was a kind of turning away from the wild because there was a there was a stability, ironically, in the potato for for a while, and then and then there wasn't so. It's. I suppose it's important in, information to um, uh, to keep 
or to try and relearn because they, they, it's easily forgotten. And then you, if you have a generation or two that does not engage with the the wild, then you'd be amazed how how much how much you lose. And we're still we're still we're ten years open in an ear, and we're and we're always learning. There's always a new ingredient or the, a new plant that we come across, or a forager gives us, and we kind of like play around with it and say, "Oh, this is interesting. How, how can we? How can we?" I, even last night we got a massive gigantic pine cone and we haven't used before and we were like what will we do with this and we were like oh we could pickle it and we could maybe try and like smoke it or and so like we we uh we we were gonna we're gonna play around with it and see if it's uh if we can get it to the point of being delicious and edible and often it's not it's not always possible you mentioned that it, an ear is very dependent on tourists. I mean, with doing that sort of investigation of the of the cuisine of the region, do you find that that's something that the locals are interested in, or are they a little bit hard to bring around? It, yeah, it's 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 a it's a pre pandemic. I mean, an ear was could be eighty percent tourists, um, and then you would have people from Dublin around the country, and then and then people from from Galway. Ironically, then Cava is is people. I suppose local people are very interested in, and I think it's that. I mean, you might there might be a similar phenomenon in uh, in in Australia with the fact that I I think because we are from a cold climate, Irish people want. Um, food that represents warmness, and that's why I think we we are always looking towards um, the Mediterranean for that discomfort, and and I think that's why Cava was 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 so um, uh, was was so successful. Um, I think I think when Irish people look at an ear, sometimes they, they, they might find it quite austere because we're, we're we are restricting ourselves and our palate to a specific locality or just to a specific country. Uh, so, I mean, that appeals to tourists because they want to, I suppose, experience, um, experience a, a region. But ironically, post, I suppose, well, we're not even post-pandemic, but since we've reopened and there's, there is a lot more um, staycations, then um, uh, we've had a lot more Irish people who have actually come to the restaurant for the first time and uh, even though we're open 10 years, I'm, I'm still amazed even last night, people are like, oh, no, it's our first time in. So it, I hope that with the pandemic uh, or one of, the, one of the positives is that people might re-experience their own place and, uh, and actually, uh, and actually uh, enjoy, the, I suppose, the, the food offering from, uh, from that place. Yeah, well, I suppose if there's one thing we've all got pretty used to, it's, you know, being where we are. So I think if we can go a bit deeper into home base and, yeah, appreciate it, look at it anew, find, uh, yeah, find different angles, then I think that is a positive that we can take out of this whole period. Yeah, yeah, even when I when I was it was it was interesting when I was in Australia and we were cooking on Kangaroo Island and um, the some of the guests because of course I'm sure you have the same this weird mix of of uh, I wouldn't say it's not Englishness it's like well Ireland and England are different and Australia is different again but there's always some weird thing that joins us all together even though Australia is so multicultural that some of the some of the 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 people that were there when I said I was using native Australian greens they were like what are they like it was just and like they were new to me but they were just completely off the radar I suppose for people who 
feel that well Australia is 200 years old or it's like uh, uh, from when people settled there and not I suppose this kind of long space of like 40,000 years when people have been there and it's similar in Ireland like people in Ireland people have been in Ireland 10,000 years but really when we think about Ireland and Irish food really people are only thinking in, in a couple of hundred years and they go, oh, what do you mean that native Irish ingredients? And you say, well, this is, people have eaten this for 9,000 years. And they go, oh, I didn't know that. Do you know? And it's even longer in, in, in Australia. And so there's, there's, and it's all pre-written records. So it, it's, it's a, it, it is, it's, it's a, it's a, it's really interesting, I think, to, to, to investigate them. And I suppose to try and work out how people ate them and uh, and I suppose what do they contribute to the to the food culture of the of the area yeah oh absolutely I mean the project of European colonization of Australia was was definitely not to appreciate uh, what was here in a culinary sense it was about imposing yeah not only I mean crops and animals and certainly culture and yeah, a whole new concept of ownership. So yeah, it's it's yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? It's a, it's a longer timeline with that process of colonization in Ireland. Yeah. Yeah, it's more kind of geological and like the colonization of Ireland I suppose was longer I suppose than Australia in the sense that it was 800 years and so like Ireland was used for like I suppose a, for breeding cattle, you know, and and we still even though we're independent, we a 96% or 94% of the ca- of the cattle we produce are exported. So we are, are to to a certain degree like of course we are independent like um politically, but sometimes in terms of uh, in terms of food, like we 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 just I suppose kept going with the same pattern of I suppose dairy farming and uh um, and uh, ca- uh, beef production, and I-, I think it's that's why it's important to make these little uh, forays into into the into the wild, and just to see it's never going to sup- it's never going to like change things dramatically. You can't like just go into the wild and live off the wild. I mean, that's that that's not what I'm what what I'm what I'm saying. It's it's more. I always always say it's more as a seasoning. As, as a way to because we all have lamb and we all have beef and we all have vegetables and, but it's it's the way that you season them I think that often brings out the the culture and I think that's probably most uh, apparent in say in, in a lot of Asian cooking like it's still the same vegetables but when you regions are identified by the different spices or the different uh, flavors or condiments that they use and so uh, I would hope over time that this this way of, of seasoning would would become uh, uh, more registered in, in in Irish people's consciousness. Mm, I mean, it's definitely one of the points of pride of a culture. I mean, you think about Spain or Italy, and you know how proud every village is or every province is of their their own flavors and their own dishes. Uh, it would be, um, yeah. I mean, we love that diversity and those those points of difference when we when we travel. And I think if the people that live in a place such as Ireland or such as Australia can also find pride in the the ingredients that were growing there you know, forever, then I think that's, that's only a positive. It's just a richer food culture all around. Yeah, exactly. And it's, it's not about replacing. It's more about kind of just changing subtly and, and then, uh, and, and transforming, you know, food always migrates and you can't stop, uh, you can't stop the migration of food in, in the way when people migrate and foods change. And I think that's why, 
like we have to allow food to migrate and allow people to experiment and i think there's often like accusations of, of appropriation and um like neo-colonization and that but i think food has to be allowed to i suppose be a, an organic thing and and if you want to fuse two things together and and it is in the spirit of of feeding people i, I think that can only be a good thing yeah well i think it's the spirit of feeding people but also the spirit of of understanding and sort of trying to deepen your knowledge and trying to bring, um, bring, I guess, heritage or culture to the fore. Like if it's done with respect and interest, then I feel like there's, there's so many ways to, yeah, create and meld and, um, yeah, uh, yeah, fuse whatever, however you want, however you want to think about it. But, um, yeah, I think there's, there's definitely great ways of doing it that just, um, yeah, create richness and new stories and connection which is always a good thing yeah and i think that's for me the the importance i think always when you when you go to eat in, in another country and you go to eat in a another another person's house I, I think that's that that creates that dynamic and that sense of community and then if i suppose we've collaborated over over the years with so many different chefs from different places and it's it's interesting stuff that sometimes stuff doesn't work but sometimes you 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 come across new ideas and i think that that process of um creativity is is important for us um and, and and it's also important to acknowledge where that creativity has come from i think sometimes in the food world uh people are under the impression that they just invent dishes and these new dishes come out but there's always like places where these come from and i think it's important to almost like when you're writing a academic paper like to cite i think will will goldfarb has often done this and citing well this technique comes from here and this technique comes from there and this is my new idea or this is this this food comes from here and but and, and i think that's the respectful element about saying what well, these this is where this stuff comes from and, and that acknowledgement is is part and parcel of the of the of the of the of the end dish yeah well i think perhaps sometimes people have this idea that it's only creative and brilliant if it's come just out of a vacuum and you've created it from scratch where of course that's that's really never going to be the case but actually I think I think the brilliance is in taking things and and putting I don't know finding a, a new way to talk about them or to express them in in a culinary sense and and definitely I guess um, respectfully being part of a, a great narrative uh, of a dish or an ingredient and you know I suppose a dish can ask a question well well what if it was like this or you know does this could this be how it is um it, you know just in this moment perhaps or just in this place I think uh yeah if you see yourself as part of a lineage and and a narrative then I think that's that's the best thing about food I reckon yes yes no no I, I absolutely I think uh I think that's what makes it exciting and that's what I suppose that also makes you feel as you said that you're 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 communicating with food through through different generations you know or even even in between generations whether it's 5 or 10 year or you see I mean we we are open in near 10 years and like other restaurants have opened uh, since us and have developed the, along similar lines, and I, I think that's that's a really good thing to to see us in terms of this trajectory, as opposed to see us in terms of in terms of being oppositional. What they opened and they're copying us, or or they're taking away from this. I just see it as 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 a kind of spectrum of like an investigation into Irish food or Irish food culture, and the more restaurants that do it, the 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 the, the stronger the movement will be. 
Mm. I'd love to talk about Food on the Edge. The whole idea of a live food event is very exciting to me from locked down Melbourne. I think the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival was uh, cancelled last year, snuck in in March, and then the, the winter program's just been cancelled um, or perhaps postponed. But, you know, it's just very hard to get live events happening these days. I know yours has a virtual element as well, but tell me about it. Yeah, it started five or six years ago as, as a way to um, showcase the showcase Ireland uh, and its its food culture to to international chefs and also then for those international chefs to um, to to teach us something and to to bring what they are doing and it has it has changed over the years in terms of its maybe its its philosophy and, and its outlook in terms of possibly when we opened first or sorry open when we when we began first it, we had a lot of say fine dining chefs and uh, represented in the mix uh, a lot of Michelin stars a lot of the world's best restaurants and, and we've kind of ended up so, somewhere in the middle where of course those players are, are important is uh, for the development of food but we've also kind of taken a wider kind of uh, social gastronomic uh, lens to the whole process and looked at how food is evolving in different places like uh, hospitals or institutions or prisons or uh, in small micro communities and so we we off we, we try and mix it up between figures that are very well known in the food world uh, around the world and figures that people may not have heard of that we that we received through recommendations saying this person is doing something really interesting in this part of the world and uh, and that's and that's the kind of uh, the the blend and we we missed last year because of uh, because of COVID we released a book uh, which is still which is it's a free ebook called Cooking After COVID it's still I think you can still download it from our website and we asked people from all over the world just to send an email um, similar to like a letter about uh, how how they're dealing with COVID or how they're responding to it. And uh, I think it's about, there's about 200 emails in the, in the, in the book that we received from various different, uh, various different people. And this year we're fingers crossed. We're, we're, we're going for a blended event. Uh, The blended, the virtual aspect of the tickets are on sale and, people can can do that the the in-house element is a little more difficult uh, at the moment you can't do anything indoors for that amount of people for two or three hundred so we have a tent that is going to be uh, outside and uh, we can have 200 at the moment i'm hoping by the middle of october we'll be allowed to have 300 uh, and we have 50 percent of the participants are uh, 50% of the speakers are coming and the other 50% are are just doing speaking virtually and we decided that anyone outside Europe this year would just speak virtually just because we just don't know the situation outside Europe like in Europe now we have a a COVID cert where you can fly as long as you're vaccinated so there's no issue there whereas even say you mentioned Mark at the top of the program I mean uh, Sydney and Melbourne lockdown again I mean if we pay for flights then people can't come and it, it's it's hard to to, uh, to recoup some of those uh, some of those losses, so we just made uh, that um, that uh, that decision, and uh, and hopefully, fingers crossed, it will go ahead. It will happen, and we're we're entering new territory again in terms of this streaming it, and I hope it it will bring it to more people around the world. 
Mm, yeah, well, that's the advantage, isn't it, of of doing things virtually is that people are able to access it who wouldn't be able to get there in person necessarily. So what do you reckon the big sort of strands of conversation will be? Well, our theme this year is, is social gastronomy, That's uh, which I mentioned. And, and so I think that food as a vehicle for whether it's empowerment, whether it's development of culture, whether it's the development of, of community, I think that will be one strand. And I think the other strand will most definitely be like how COVID has a, has changed the the way people eat the and i suppose the, the the way that we the way that we cook or the people that we cook for and i i think that that would be certainly um uh, a massive um a massive a massive talking point like we'll have a little artisan market and, and and even the conversations that happen with the the people off um uh off stage i think a lot of that will be um um, will 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 I suppose just you can't escape it. I suppose it's just there so much, and when you meet people, it's even with with our with our with ourselves talking now, and we do a podcast for Food in the Edge as well. And you can't you always try and not have the first question be about COVID, but the minute you go, how are you? And they go, oh, I'm fine. And what's it like there? And it's it's just we 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 always say we're not going to talk about COVID first, and then it just happens because you just say, oh, how are you? They go, oh, we're locked down again or we didn't open or we opened but it's not great <laughs> and uh so it's it's i'd say even though we're trying for the theme to be on social gastronomy i think the theme will be on COVID. but uh who, who knows well i mean they're, th- they're interwoven aren't they i mean it is yeah at the- <laughs> i think definitely yeah it's pretty it's COVID is pretty dominant and I suppose it threads in and out. In Australia, we've had long periods where we haven't had to worry about it too much. Um, but I think, yeah, it's been a bit of a, a false dawn. Um, yeah. And, and, and the, the weirdest thing is that we, I suppose we, we were, we, we were looking at Australia and, uh, and New Zealand as kind of like champions over here going, Oh my God, they have it right. And it's all grand. And this is what we need to do. And we tried the whole, um, uh, hotel quarantining, and it, because we share a border with uh, with England, with Northern Ireland, we could it didn't work, and and yeah, it's it's just there is so many I think false dawns in along uh, over the last two years, and even still now we're open, but the cases are two thousand, and I'm still worried that oh my god, in September are we going to be closed again? It's like is uh, are we going to be closed for? Like what, what I think last year it was we were closed for eight to ten weeks and then we were open to Christmas for three weeks and then we were closed again for for six months. So we're certainly not out of it yet, and uh, it'll just um, it'll um, it, it remains to be seen. My friend is working in the vaccination centre and they're doing thousands a day, but but uh, she said they're running out of people to do. Like nearly everyone who wants to get vaccinated is done like in from say the 25 up to 65 to 70 so like if we're running out of people to vaccinate and the cases are still high i don't know where else we can go you know it's uh do do we just i suppose learn to live with it um or 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 or, or, what, or what do we do well i certainly do not have the answer but they're questions that we can't help but keep asking um jp it's been such a pleasure to have a chat to you today i really look forward to the time where i can come back to ireland and yeah enjoy exploring contemporary irish cuisine in your in your safe hands uh thank you so much for chatting today thank you so much 
This is Dirty Linen and I'm Danny Vallant. We air the issues that the hospitality industry finds hard to talk about, hearing from different people with unique perspectives. We want to hear from you as well. If you have something that needs to be said about a topic, get in touch so we can include your perspective. Contact us at dirtylinen at deepintheweeds.com.au or hit us up on Insta at Dirty Linen Podcast. We can't wait to hear from you. This.